How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name is Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing pretty good. As I record this, it is the day after Labor Day, so, of course, I am wearing my white jorts. Because you know that rule that rich yacht owners who have vacation homes made up where you're not supposed to wear white after Labor Day? Fuck that rule. First of all, I'm pretty sure those rich assholes wouldn't appreciate my jorts to begin with, never mind the fact that they really highlight my shapely calves. But also, where do wealthy families with homes in the East Hamptons or whatever get off using Labor Day as an arbitrary distinction for the end of their stupid-ass fashion rules. You keep the words Labor Day out of your mouth, hypothetical plutocrats. You're the reason why we needed a Labor Day. It would be like if the bad guys from Captain Planet who want to destroy the rainforest, or the bad guys from reality who want to destroy the rainforest, made up a rule where it was like, Oh, you can't wear pinstriped suits anymore and smoke cigars after Arbor Day. You don't get to use Arbor Day as a milestone, hoggish greedly. And Yachtly Van Yotterson doesn't get to tell me about Labor Day or when I can and can't wear my beautiful white jorts. So take that, Yachtly Yotterson of the East Hampton Yottersons. Ooh, I hate that Yachtly Yotterson. Anyway, now that I'm done being pretend mad about a rule that nobody's given a shit about for 30 years, let's say we talk about a comic book. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Bradley Reed. Doctor Strange tells us beware of the flames of Faltine. The Mighty Hulk tells us the best thing is a bean. The Valkyrie tells us swing your brightsword with a swish. Sean Connery tells us, it's time for Shinopshish. Shinopshish. Thanks, Brad. And thank you, Sean Connery, for stopping by to help us out with that rhyme. It's no problem, hub. Say, I was wondering, Sean, in the movie Highlander, how come you ended up playing the guy who was supposed to be Egyptian, and Christopher Lambert ended up playing the guy who should have had a Scottish accent, despite the fact that he has a pretty thick French accent. Well, Hub, I'm glad you asked, but the truth is, I never learned to do a Scottish accent. Oh, weird. Me either. Anyway, thanks for stopping by, Sean Connery. And thanks for the rhyme, Brad. Defenders, number 57, March, 1978. And along came Ms. Marvel. Written by Jerry Conway and Chris Claremont, trotted by George Tusca and Dave Cockrum, inked by Dan Green, lettered by Peter Iroh, colored by Francois Mouly, and incidentally, when I was going over the credits for this issue, I thought, Francois Mouly, that name sounds super familiar. That's because Francois Mouly went on to be co-founder of Raw Magazine, which was an incredibly influential publication, which she co-founded along with her, her husband, Art Spiegelman. And then since 1993, she's been the art director of The New Yorker, and she received a knighthood in France. So, uh, yeah, great job. Also, she did a nice job with the colors in this. So, good for you, Francois Mouly. I'm sorry that I'm probably mispronouncing your name. And edited by Archie Goodwin. 
Defensive lineup. Nighthawk. Valkyrie. Hellcat. The Incredible Hulk. Clea. Doctor Strange. And Ms. Marvel. Previously in The Defenders. The last issue wrapped up the whole codename Fuckface story, so this is a one-shot issue with a different creative team, so no need for a previously in the Defenders dealie. God zooks! Did I use the extra time I had from not having to write a recap wisely? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, no. No, I did not. Our story opens a few months ago in Doctor Strange's Sanctum Sanctimonious. Steve hasn't quit the Defenders yet, so he's hanging out with Valkyrie and the Hulk. Suddenly, an image of Ms. Marvel pops out of the orb of Agamotto and starts floating around the room. Damn it, Steve! We've been over this. If you're gonna leave the orb in a public place, clear its damn browser history. Nobody needs to know which celebrities you've been mystically Google image searching. Although, I guess it could have been worse. Instead of Ms. Marvel's giant disembodied head floating around the room, Val and the Hulk might have found themselves facing a giant disembodied floating celebrity nip slip. Or one of those flame ghosts Steve is so fond of. Anyway, when Hulk sees Ms. Marvel's face appear, the Green Goliath goes berserk. Turns out that a while ago, the Hulk had one of those superhero misunderstandings with Captain Marvel out in the desert, and he's still pretty sore about it. Since Ms. Marvel's costume is pretty similar to Captain Marvel's, Hulk figures that the two are probably in cahoots, so he gets pissed off and commences to smashing. Now, just for the purposes of disambiguation, when I say Captain Marvel, I mean the guy who was called Captain Marvel in the 70s. The woman who's currently Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers, was then called Ms. Marvel. And when I say the guy who was called Captain Marvel in the 70s, I mean the guy in the Marvel Universe who was called Captain Marvel in the 70s. DC was also publishing a character in the 70s named Captain Marvel, but nowadays he's calling himself Shazam, which is weird because that's also the word he says which transforms him back and forth from being a superhero to being a little kid, which means that he can never introduce himself. So all the other heroes must think he's being super rude all the time. I bet he gets a lot of, Oh, hey Kazam, nice to see you. Uh, actually Kazam is the Shaquille O'Neal movie where he plays a genie. My name is... Something else. Oh, I'm sorry, what is it? Um, it's Gomer Pyle's catchphrase? Dude, that character hasn't been on TV for over 50 years. Just tell me your name. Mm, no. Anyway, Hulk starts destroying the Sanctum in an attempt to fight the ghostly image of Ms. Marvel's head. Steve and Val attempt to become their behemoth buddy with a combination of yelling and hitting him with a sword. Perhaps unsurprisingly, that doesn't work out so great for them. The enraged Emerald Avenger smacks his pals around until Steve uses his spell to put Hulk in a mystic timeout. Eventually, the mysterious image fades, and the Hulk calms down and sulks off moodily, leaving Doctor Strange and Valkyrie to wonder what the fuck just happened. Good question, guys. A few months later, Ms. Marvel's psychiatrist, Dr. Michael Barnett, is hanging out in a bar and getting wasted. Barnett is the only person who knows that Marvel's secret identity is former head of NASA security and current editor of Woman magazine, Carol Danvers. Man, that is one heck of a career switch. Kind of like how in the first Ghostbusters movie, Sigourney Weaver was a professional cellist, but 
By the second movie, she was an accredited professional art restorer. Impressive. Anyway, Dr. Barnett is getting drunk because he has a huge crush on his patient and also, for some reason, seems to be annoyed that she is a superhero. While Mike is drunkenly pondering whether his inability to compartmentalize his feelings towards Carol represents a breach of ethics, a sinister dude in a dope leisure suit taps him on the shoulder. The slosh psychiatrist resents the rude intrusion of his inebriated introspection and prepares to sass the stranger something fierce, but when he looks up and meets the gaze of the object of his annoyance, he freezes, mesmerized. The stranger introduces himself as Arthur Shaman, hypnotist extraordinaire. When Barnett made the mistake of locking eyes with Art Shaman, his will became instantly subsumed by that of the master mesmerist. I think the lesson here is that if there's one thing that my New England upbringing and comic books agree on, it is this. Never make eye contact with anyone. It is just not worth it. Shaman schleps the hypnotized head shrinker over to the secret quarters of his employers, a covert cadre of evil scientists who dress like astronaut beekeepers and call themselves the Advanced Idea Mechanics, or AIM. Pretty decent acronym. Once Dr. Barnett is not so safely deposited in this apparent apiary of evil, one of the AIM guys starts to strap him into an evil science doohickey called a psycho-conditioner so that they can suck all his thoughts out and take a look at him. Barnett starts to break Shaman's hypnotic hold, so Art subdues his captive the old-fashioned way by socking him in the jaw. I feel like if you're a hypnotist and you punch someone out, a cool thing to say afterwards would be, You are getting very sleepy. As you dust your hands off. But despite his leisure suit and his fun name, Arthur Shaman isn't that cool. The space beekeepers reveal that a little while ago, Carol Danvers led the cops on a raid of one of their secret bases. They weren't crazy about that, so they decided to kidnap Carol Shrink and get him to reveal what her deepest fear is so that they can use that to fuck with her. After a few minutes in the psycho conditioner, Barnett reveals that his patient has been having recurring nightmares about the Hulk killing her. Uh-oh. I bet Aim is at least a little bit disappointed that Danvers isn't terrified of bees. I mean, they already have those outfits and everything. Meanwhile, in Manhattan, Patsy Walker, a.k.a. Hellcat, and Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk, are returning to Kyle's apartment after a night on the town. In the foyer, a security alarm informs Kyle that someone has broken into the billionaire-do-well-bird enthusiast's luxury penthouse. So naturally, the duo of do-gooders change into their super-duds and Kool-Aid man their way through Kyle's door. Hooray! Once inside, the door-busting defenders are greeted by a decidedly nonplussed Ms. Marvel. Or maybe she's plussed. Whichever one means she's like, eh, whatever. Marvel informs the pair of perturbed protagonists that she came into Kyle's pad because she has a precognitive ability she calls a seventh sense, which told her that 1. Her psychiatrist was in danger, B. The defenders were in danger, and thirdly, those respective dangers were intertwined. Nighthawk demands that Ms. Marvel inform him how she knew that Nighthawk could be found at Kyle Richmond's apartment. Rather than just saying that she could have asked pretty much anybody about that one, Marvel diplomatically is like, gee, uh, must be that seventh sense thing. Well played, Carol. Back at the Sanctum Sanctimonious, Hulk and Valkyrie are visiting their old pal Clea, 
when a giant futuristic tank pulls up outside and starts firing at the building. When the disgruntled heroes rush outside to see what all the hullabaloo is about, an enormous, goofy-looking robot emerges from the vehicle. Well, I gotta admit, this looks bad, but they should hear this robot out. Maybe he's just friendly and wants to... Oh, wait. Never mind. The robot is green and purple. Definitely super villainous. Hulk picks up on this visual cue and immediately attacks the android interloper. This doesn't work out very well for him. The robot backhands the shit out of the jade giant and sends him sprawling. Clea and Val don't fare much better against a mechanical menace. Clea attacks the android with the flames of Faltine, only to have the spell reflected back at her. While the robot is distracted, Val tries to whack it with her magic sword, but the blade just bounces off her automaton adversary's metal hide. The robot announces that his name is Warbot, and that it is the ultimate soldier. Fair enough. Warbot uses some weird eye beams to seal Val inside a crystal cube, then turns its attention back to the Hulk and uses some other weird eye beams to freeze the Hulk in ice and knock him unconscious. He then yoinks the ice-encased unconscious behemoth into the fancy tank and flies away, because it turns out that it's a flying giant futuristic tank. Handy. Nighthawk shows up just as the flying giant futuristic tank is taking off with its Hulksicle cargo. The affluent avian aficionado radios Ms. Marvel and Hellcat, who decided to hang out at Kyle's apartment while he checked on the Sanctum. Sending Kyle as your scout seems like kind of an odd choice. I mean, his jetpack is still busted, so the best he can do is try to glide from rooftops like a flying squirrel. Ms. Marvel can straight up fly, and even Patsy has those claw grappling hook things and can Spider-Man around pretty good. Maybe neither of them wants to be alone with Kyle in his apartment. That makes sense. It's like that riddle with the farmer who has the corn, the goose, and the fox that he has to get across the river. You know, where he can't leave the corn alone with the fox because the fox got understandably freaked out when it found out that the corn was watching it sleep, and the farmer can't be alone with the goose because geese are assholes. I always forget the solution to that one. I think maybe evaporation worked into it somewhere? Probably. Probably evaporation. Nighthawk tells Hellcat and Ms. Marvel what he has just seen, but also tells them not to worry, because he managed to put a tracer on the giant flying futuristic tank. Whew, that's a relief. Because if there's one word that I would use to describe the giant flying futuristic tank, it is inconspicuous. I mean, that thing can just blend into traffic. It's basically like the white panel van of the Marvel Universe. Thanks to the Tracer, our heroes are able to follow the tank to its destination, another AIM secret base out in the rural section of Long Island. When the vehicle lands, Warbot, Arthur Shaman, and a bunch of AIM guys pile out, toting a frozen Hulk and a brain-scrambled Dr. Barnett with them. As they walk, Shaman reveals that his plan is to brainwash the Hulk as soon as he thaws out, and then order him to murder Carol Danvers, thus fulfilling her nightmares. Fortunately, before the bad guys get a chance to begin phase two of their sinister scheme, which I guess would be busting out some hair dryers and pointing them at the Hulk, Ms. Marvel, Hellcat, and Nighthawk Kool-Aid man their way through the wall of the base. Hooray! Double Kool-Aid mans this episode! Warbit looks like he's getting ready to attack. Look out, Carol! That guy took out the Hulk, Val, and Clea in like a minute. This is gonna be an epic battle that... Oh, what's that? You just punched its head off in like a second? Well, good for you.
Hooray! Patsy covers up Art Shaman's eyes so that he can't hypnotize her, and then she rams his head into a tree. Hooray! Kyle mops up the rest of the immoral astronaut apiarists, and then Ms. Marvel goes around and breaks all their evil toys. The only problem remaining is that Dr. Barnett is still all loopy from the hypnosis and brain-sucking machine that he got hooked up to. But the gang swings him by the sanctum, and Clea is able to fix him up as good as new. Hey, as long as you're poking around in there, you want to maybe see if you could zap the part of his brain that fixates on developing inappropriate relationships with his patients? No? Well, never hurts to ask. Before Ms. Marvel takes off, Clea asks her what the deal was with her giant floating head popping out of the orb of Agamotto a few months ago. Carol's like, Oh, that? Well, remember that weird, ill-defined seventh sense I was talking about before? Well, weird, ill-defined powers can sometimes behave in inexplicable but plot-convenient ways. You should ask Steve about it sometime. Okay, bye! Thanks, Ms. Marvel. That explains everything. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I am doing pretty good. Seems like there was a little more thought put into that one than there sometimes is. Do you know how sometimes when you're about to answer somebody's questions and then you get sidetracked by a little your own thought process? Mm -hmm. I was just thinking how delicious the alcoholic beverage that you created for today was. Oh, that's nice. And Thank you. You're welcome. And thinking, I didn't drink that much of it, but I already feel a little little buzz. Hmm. So I should drink the rest of it real slow. And then I finished doing pretty good, I guess. And that is some lightning fast thought processing you've got there, Corey. Pretty good. Yeah. Generally, if there's like a pause, then I get sidetracked by something that I'm thinking. It's something way dumber than that. I Oh, thank you. <laughs> I don't know if you listened to the last episode, but I talked about the song Splish Splash and alternate lyrics that I came up I with. I did listen for. to it. I listened to the whole thing, oh. and you did a fine job. Oh, well, thank you. But recently, I've been kind of fixated on other made-up lyrics to Splish Splash. Mm. Like, you know the part of the song where he's talking about the rest of the people that are attending the party? Where he's like, a, there was Long Tall Sally and... A, Peggy Sue, good golly, Miss Molly was a even there too. That's part of the song. Okay. I started putting together the rest of the guest list to the party, and I get this stuck in my head now when <laughs> I'm just not paying attention or trying to think of other things. Mm -hmm. But um, there was Smelly Nelly and a shitty Ed. <laughs> good gravy, creepy Davy was a watching from the shed. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. This is not a great party. No. To get a naked dude and a bunch of weirdos. I never said he was naked. I did. Oh, yeah, no, the, the naked guy from the, the, the bath guy. Yeah, I thought you were just assuming that, uh, oh, creepy. that creepy... Ed? No, creepy Davy, shitty Ed. Oh, shitty Ed. Uh, yeah, you're, I thought you were just assuming that uh, creepy Davy was naked while he was watching. No, no, shit. no, the singer. Because he was. Oh. Yeah. There's a reason they call him that. <laughs> I'll see. I mostly really like the idea of somebody being nicknamed Shitty Ed. <laughs> because he's just, in general, a bad person? Yeah, or like... yeah, it's not a scatological reference. It's more oh, delineating his no quality as an Ed. What, what pun? Because scat means poop, like animal poop. That's what the word scatological, what scatological means? means? Yeah, relating to poop. No shit! Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. 
That's what scatological humor is. Uh, oh, this is like such an educational humor. show. I know, I know. I keep trying Where to get us that, that grant? grant money. Where is it? Come on. If we have any grant writers listening, I know that we do, actually. Yeah, I just learned a word, you guys. See? And so did probably some other people. Yeah, so, you know. Give us some money. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's how it works. Anyway, you want to talk about a comic book? <laughs> sure. What did you think of this comic book, Defenders 57? I quite enjoyed it. I did too. It was a nice little lark. It definitely was a departure from the ongoing storyline that we had been following. And it was pretty fun. It had a real different feel. I don't know if that's the guest crew. Uh, I think that's probably the, the main reason. Yeah. yeah. This issue was written by Chris Claremont, who is probably... I don't need to say the word probably. He is best known for writing the X-Men, having a huge run of the X-Men from the mid-70s to the early 90s. That was really when the, the book took off and became super popular. But it was written by him, but the plot was by Jerry Conway. And that actually makes a lot of sense, given this had a really similar feel to and took place during, at least the beginning of it took place during, the Conway like two or three issue arc of the Defenders from a few months ago, and also had the flair of just being like kind of unnecessarily complicated in a way that didn't seem necessary. I guess that's why I use the word unnecessarily. Complicated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but we also have a different art team on this. We have George Tuska and Dave Cockrum. You familiar with either of those guys? The names? Co Cockrum? Right. Has been, he's shown up before here. He, he has, and he also was, uh, for at least a while, kind of synonymous with the X-Men. He was the original artist for the Claremont X-Men era. And then George Tuska is a guy who was around forever. He got his start in the 40s, working at Eisner Studios for Will Eisner, alongside like Lou Fine and Bob Powell and... Mike Sikowski and guys like that, and then just kind of bounced around the comics industry forever, spent a ton of time at Marvel in the Silver and Bronze Age, did a long run on the Hulk, did a long run on Iron Man, and just kind of got known for being very fast and very versatile as an artist, so ended up doing a ton of fill-in issues, which is what this is. Have you read any interviews with the artists? Like, hearing you talk about it, it sounds... Like, it could be a pretty awesome job where, like, you just get to show up and draw different comics all the time. But it was I wonder not. if it's kind it, of a grind. No, it is a huge grind, and the artists are horribly abused in general, especially at Marvel, especially during this era. A number of them died very young uh, because of how overworked they were. They did not have their original artwork returned to them. Just because that was not company policy, that didn't change until the mid-70s. And... Yeah, it, it was, they they were and generally continue to be fa fairly abused by the industry. Hmm. So, yeah, not not that fun. Not as rosy as you might. No, there's think. a great book that I think you would actually really enjoy uh, called Marvel Comics, The Untold Story by Sean Howe. And it talks about just Marvel Comics from beginning to like, I think it goes mostly through like the mid 90s or else I just stopped paying attention at that point. But it's, it's very, very good. And the stuff about the 70s at Marvel is super, super interesting because it's when you get a lot of guys like George Tuska, who at this point was middle-aged. He kept working in comics 
Uh, his last work as a comic book artist was published in 2009. His first was in like the early 40s. But in the 70s at Marvel, the median age for a artist was, I think, like 46. And the average age for a writer was like 26. Hmm. And so you had all of these writers coming in who had grown up reading Silver Age comic books. And was like reading Stan Lee's little things about like the Marvel bullpen. And he would create these stories of like, oh, it's kind of like you were saying where it's like this rosy picture of just like, oh, yeah, all these artists just hanging out together, making comics, having fun, going on adventures. And that had never been the case. Pretty much everybody worked from home, came in, showed up, put in their work, would have like maybe a brief story conference with Stan where he would tell them what the plots of what they were supposed to draw were. And then they would show up with their work, and he'd fill in the word bubbles. But when these writers came in, they had grown up with these stories of what it was going to be like at Marvel and with their idea of what the Marvel bullpen was. And so when they all got there kind of at the same time, they just kind of created something similar to that environment, only with a lot more drugs. I will read that book. It sounds insightful. It is. Getting the slightest bit off topic, though. What? <laughs> I know. It's so unlike us. Yeah, so you actually, I think, probably have more of a background reading Chris Claremont stuff than I do. You grew up reading, like, the 80s X-Men stuff, right? Mm-hmm. You are pretty into it, right? Yeah. It Ooh. was a long time ago, so I'm a little fuzzy. A little sure. light on the details. Sure, but, but did the tone of the writing seem familiar to you? In, in... I would say, yeah. I didn't put it together when reading it, but now that you mention it... Claremont is something that I am coming to later and am developing an appreciation to. Initially, I had kind of an adverse reaction to his writing because I didn't grow up reading m much X-Men stuff. And when I first started reading it, he does a lot of what we kind of chide Wolfman for in the New Teen Titans stuff, the show-and-tell mm -hmm. stuff. He's really big on that. I remember reading X-Men stuff, and you would get panels where it would show the claws coming out of Wolverine's wrists, and it would say the noise snicked. Mm -hmm. And then it would see, like, his claws popped out of his sheaths with a snicked. I'd be like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they did. It's a visual medium. I, I can see that. But he he does some really good and solid writing and really solid plot work. And I do overall really like Chris Claremont. It just took me a while to lean into it because I first encountered him going back and reading older storylines that he took over. So, like... I really liked the Black Goliath series, which was only five issues long, and the first three issues of it were not by him, and then he took over with the fourth or fifth issue, and it felt wrong to me, because it was him writing it. And a similar thing when I was reading Power Man and Iron Fist. I had been reading Luke Cage Hero for Hire, and then Chris Claremont takes over from writer, and I was like, oh, this seems wrong to me. But, and, you know, this is the mildest of all takes, but Chris Claremont's a great writer, and I've really grown to appreciate him. So you liked him in this book? I did. Good. It was fun. I felt like a lot happened. The pace pacing was good. Uh, definitely was some show and tell. Mm-hmm. Some show and tell. And like I said, there's. I think it's Conway's influence because he did the, the plotting. But there was definitely a lot where I was like, wait, why is this happening? This, The whole thing with Carol Danvers had been having nightmares about the Hulk attacking her. And it really hints that that had been something that had been an ongoing issue in the Miss Marvel series. And it wasn't. It was just like, oh, yeah, I'll just imply that this had been happening a lot, which is something that Conway does a lot. And it kind of bugged me. 
Did she have a psychiatrist in the, her she series? She did have a psychiatrist in her series. And Chris Claremont was the writer of that series at this point, which he had actually taken over from Jerry Conway. Oh, far out. Yeah. Small world. Indeed. Let's talk about Miss Marvel. How'd you like her? She's always awesome. Yeah, I, I like her a lot. So you'd, you'd been familiar with the character coming into this? Mm-hmm. She was very different in the 70s, and kind of had her character changed a lot when she got her own book. She had previously been the head of security for NASA, and a on-again, off-again love interest for Captain Marvel, the male Captain Marvel. The male Marvel Comics Captain Marvel. A lot of weird disambiguation that has to happen with that. And then they got their DNA scrambled and she got superpowers. And then she got her own comic book. Did not, for the first few issues of it, know that she was Captain Marvel. Like, they had separate personalities. And also got a new job as the editor of Woman Magazine. Wait, so she made herself Woman of the Year? (laughs) Yeah, but she didn't know. (laughs) Oh, no. It's also possible, because she was not the editor-in-chief. She was the editor of Woman Magazine. The editor-in-chief is a gentleman you may be familiar with named J. Jonah Jameson. Oh, shit. Yeah, and he did not like Woman Magazine. It was like a cash grab for him. He wanted to, like, really make some bucks off of this crazy feminism trend that Mm. was going on. He was an avowed male chauvinist, and I thought that was kind of a fun fun plot twist for the the book, to have her boss at the purportedly feminist magazine be her foil, who was a chauvinist. I did not know that. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a neat book. You should check out some Miss Marvel. I think I should. The new Miss Marvel's great, too. Well, yeah, she has a good showing in this issue, for sure. Although, I guess you gotta be a little bit careful about how you show up in the ether. Because if you just pop up and random orbs of Vagamotos and random hulks are around... Yeah, why the go fuck sideways. did that happen? Well, at the end, they're like, well, I guess it was just out there in the universe and y'all picked it up <laughs> like a ham radio. That's what I'm talking about, like the unnecessarily complicated plot. It device. starts with that and it ends with it, too. And I don't feel like either of them were necessary <laughs> to set up the story. It was like, weird thing that doesn't make any sense happened. Oh, okay. Just as a framing device for mm-hmm. a story that has almost nothing to do with that. But I did like they came full circle and they closed with that. With everybody yeah. basically shrugging. Being like, oh, that was weird. <laughs> Pretty good. I seldom feel bad for Doctor Strange, but if Hulk opened palm slash grabs you backhanded in the junk it's gotta hurt yeah i hadn't even noticed that in that panel but i went back and read and it's like oh yeah he is just open um (laughs) punching steve in the dick wwf like yeah illegal super illegal kind of illegal though because like you can't punch with a closed fist but also you can't punch in below the belt yeah so yeah, it's a, it's a confusing move that the Hulk is doing. Like, if you're going to get DQ'd anyway, may as well close that fist up. Yeah, I guess. Ouch. Yeah, ouch, indeed. Steve is, like, reeling backwards. <laughs> well, it wasn't that... Li- like, this took place right before the Emissaries of Evil with Egghead busted into his sanctum. So that's a long day for Steve. Also, it is the last thing that he did, basically, before he quit the team. Mm-hmm. 
kind of makes you wonder how related that is. Oh, yeah. I mean, he probably had to have an ice pack on his business for... <laughs> he had to go to some other dimension until the swelling went down. Oh, I wonder if he can do that. Like, just like... Wouldn't bring you? his junk to him? <laughs> like, how specific can he get with the other dimensions? Can he just, like, phase his junk into a into an ice dimension? Oh, I don't think that would be wise. What if you break concentration and yeah. lose part of yourself? Yeah, that would be unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Pro- probably not a good idea. Yeah. So, while we're on the topic, maybe you can... Uh, I- I'm sorry, we were on a topic? <laughs> the topic of continuity and what happened when and timelines okay. and such. Okay. So there is clearly a gap in time between that opening sequence when Steve is still there and right. the rest of the book. And that's the reason why uh, Val first appears in her old getup and then right. her new getup after that takes place, right? Yes. Okay. Got it. Okay. That was it? That was it. I just oh, wanted that to was easy. make sure. Yeah. Speaking of getups, what did you think of AIM? Oh, let's see if we can remember the acronym. Advanced Idea Mechanics? Yeah. It just sounds like a bunch of guys that work on ideas that are mechanics. Honestly, doesn't that sound like something that a tech company might be named today? I can see that being a Silicon Valley company. Absolutely. And that is just one way in which I feel they are so far superior to their DC counterparts, who I cannot help but think of their DC counterparts, Hive. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, not where you were going with that. Yeah, well, okay. First of all, just the real obvious, they are dressed like high-tech beekeepers. and They should switch uniforms. Well, no, 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 because they're, they're, I mean, if you're comparing them to Hive, they could totally thwart Hive. Oh, as adversaries. I yeah, mm. I mean... thought you meant comparing just like which one's a better criminal organization. Oh, well, that too, man. AIM is just, they, they don't rake spicy poops. To so I think that's, that, a... that's a big bonus. A big point in their favor. But, like, the corollaries, like, you got the whole bee connection going on. You got one group of guys that's basically, hey, we're bees. And another group of guys that are like, we tell bees what to do. I mean, advantage aim. They both are collectives of anonymous evil people who just have a confused hierarchy but total anonymity. Like, they don't, neither one of them has a charismatic leader. Uh, I mean, I guess briefly Hive did, but then they blew up right after we found out about it. I feel like the difference is the people that join AIM join it because they feel like they have something to contribute that's going to achieve something greater. And the people that join Hive are like, you know, the Rudies of the world who are yeah. just kind of shuffling through life <laughs> and get swept along in a, oh, I'm wearing a purple robe now. Yeah, I guess you're right. See, I, AIM doesn't have any Rudies. Mm-mm. That we know of. Right. I mean, maybe somewhere there's a, just, just a beekeeper who is just hiding a flask in there. <laughs> they don't actually let him work on anything. <laughs> no. It's dangerous. Yeah. But, you know, if, like, you need a group shot of, like, 15 AIM guys, then, you know, he'll fill out the ranks. He'll be a seat filler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nobody can tell you got your beekeeper hat on. Yeah. It's not a hat if it covers your whole face, is it? I think it's still a hat. Okay. I think that's what they call it, a beekeeper hat. The that's what that's, I call it. It's got the... Yeah, the netting and stuff. Yeah. Right. No, I was impressed by these guys. That Warbit they built. Warbit? Warbit? Warbot? War, sure. It's impressive. It is also goofy looking as fuck. Yeah. Let's talk about the war robot. Very powerful. Very powerful. Sometimes. 
suffers from a similar problem that ninjas do in movies, where if there's one ninja, super powerful, almost impossible to defeat. As soon as you get more than one ninja, then you can just, like, push them down. No problem. Or if Ms. Marvel shows up. Well, that's the thing. Like, this guy smacks the Hulk around, reflects Clea's magic, doesn't even notice when Val hits him with her magic sword. And then they go back to AIM headquarters. Miss Marvel bops in, punches him out with one punch. I don't think Miss Marvel is that much stronger than the Hulk. It was just, well, we're towards the end of the issue, and now that we know that the real bad guys are AIM and Arthur Shaman, who we will definitely talk more about later. Yeah, it, it's he has, like, narratively dependent strength. Which, which is something, it's like the ninja problem, but it can work in a couple of directions. Either a guy will be super strong until the end and then he's easily defeated, or I feel like that one can sometimes work the other way, where he's pretty easy to defeat until you need a climactic battle at the end, so then he's super strong at the end. Narratively dependent strength. The other thing that I found fascinating about this giant war robot that is incredibly powerful sometimes is his appearance why are you gonna make your war robot that damn goofy looking i don't get that he's got like bug antennas and buck teeth now on the cover those buck teeth are red and a little bit menacing looking because they remind me of the rabbit that i saw that had blood over its two front fangs when i was a little kid but inside he's just got regular buck teeth i wonder if there is some psychological advantage to making your implement of destruction just goofy looking. If that's going to just throw people off balance when you're fighting them. My thought was at first it was maybe intended or conceived, conceptualized as like a stylized skull like the Punisher has with the Uh extended teeth, but it just got all... It gets kind of like a cross between... screwed up. Yeah, like a moth and Bugs Bunny. Yeah, it looks really silly. Yeah. So, but... I can kind of see there being some advantage to, like, being thrown off psychologically by having to attack something that's goofy-looking or that you're more likely to underestimate something that is just intrinsically laughable. And so it's like, if you were in a boxing match, what images would you put on your gloves that would just throw people off balance? Like, if you just had one boxing glove with a picture of the Golden Girls on it, and the other one had, like... A picture of fried fish. It'd be like, wait, what? It'd give you that second where the guy's like, wait, why is this happening? Mm -hmm. And then, pow, pow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Golden fish. Eat Dorothy's Bornak and fish. Yeah. What would you put on your boxing gloves? Oh, man. I don't know. It'd have to be something really, like, instantly recognizable. Mm -hmm. So something pretty big and pretty simple, but that you wouldn't be expecting... I mean, that's why, obviously, I went with the Golden Curls and Fried Fish. Sure. Yeah, I don't know. Like, maybe a picture of a puppy? Yeah, I was thinking, what is something that makes people feel, like, cozy and safe and, and happy? Mm-hmm. To, like, I don't know, for some people, that's food. So, you got sure. your fried fish. I'd, like, I don't know, maybe a cheeseburger. Uh, box of chocolates. Right. Milkshake. These are, these are all good choices. On one. And then, I don't know, just like a roast turkey like a christmas like goose oh a christmas goose yeah i mean if you just put a regular goose then you'd be like oh this guy's trying to intimidate me right but a christmas goose 
Mm-hmm. A lot of weird context going on there. Like maybe when you're you're throwing your left hook at the guy, he's he's thinking, oh yeah, like the end of a Christmas story where he has the tiny Tim go fetch him the fine fat goose from the window. Yeah, or what as big as he is? Something... That's a big goose. Ow! Yeah, it would be confusing. That's right? what they would think. Something uh. If this is in America, North America, something from childhood, like Bert or Ernie's face or Grover, you know, you're like, or a Muppet of your choosing. Sure, or Cookie Monster, so they can remember that time when they had uh, (laughs) the gas put over their face before the tonsils were removed. Yeah. Yeah, I think those are all solid choices. Yeah, so we got a, I got a Cookie Monster and a Christmas Goose. Uh Uh-huh, I got the Golden Girls and Fried Fish. Let's hope we never meet in the ring. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) That would confuse I'm just picturing everybody. our fists meeting each other mid-air like the end of Rocky Three. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just Cookie Monster and the Golden Girls. Oh, who will survive? Oh boy, let's pray they never encounter one another in the wild. Mm. So, Miss Marvel mentions that the way that she knew where the Defenders lived was her seventh sense that she has, mm-hmm. which is some kind of a random, unpredictable, precognitive power that she has. So that leads to a couple questions on my part. First of all, is she trying to get her Lilith on here? Like, to what extent does she actually have any precognitive powers? Because that is a pretty decent description of how Lilith uh, presents herself. I have crazy psychic powers sometimes, but not if you ask me to have them. Mm Mm-hmm. The other question, and probably the more salient one, what's her sixth sense? Yep, that was my thought as well. I'm wondering if maybe she calls it her seventh sense as like a setup to a line that she has, but like nobody's indulging her on it. Like she's like, yeah, I guess I must have a seventh sense. And then she just waits expectantly and everybody else is just like, yeah, I'm not going to play into that one. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I think she might just be saying waiting for somebody to say, what's your sixth sense? And then she'd be like, my sense of humor. (laughs) But wisely, perhaps, nobody's calling her on it. So she just leaves the joke hanging there all the time. I bet somebody called her on it once and just word got around. (laughs) Yeah, you're probably right. And I bet she's got a few that are packed like, my sense of style. Mm, Yeah, just don't even. It's a shame. Yeah, I thought that was weird, too. Nobody says seventh. Yeah. Sense, do they? Unless she's got, like, the, like maybe there's, like, a hidden sense that we all forgot about. Like, umami. That's not a sense, though. Well, it's, it's the it's secret flavor. flavor that nobody knew about that was just sitting right there the whole time. Everybody knew about it. They just didn't have a word for it. Yeah, well, maybe and we got a sense English. like that. Like, maybe your sixth sense is, uh, you know, that feeling you get when... You think you're hungry, but you're not quite sure? (laughs) Maybe. Yeah. You know, Disney owns that sense now. No. Yeah, they bought it. It was part of their corporate buyout. Dang. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's talk some Arthur Shaman. You think it's Shaman or Shaman? Shaman. Arthur Shaman. Mm -hmm. You're totally right. What do you think of this character? Uh, My first thought was Disco Nick Cave. <laughs> and then I just all of his dialogue I imagine sounding like Nick Cave was singing it. Oh man. You got to give that a go, Corey. I'm sorry. 
And Nick Cave fans out there are going to kill <laughs> It'll be a real murder ballad if they do. <laughs> Sorry, that was a uh, Carol Danvers <laughs> really using her sixth sense there. I'll say, I am Shaman, Arthur Shaman, and to coin a phrase, your will is mine. Yeah, I can see that. Man, I hadn't noticed that, and now I kind of can't unsee it. The, Sorry. The other thing about Arthur Shaman, perhaps not unrelated, is I feel like Cyborg would peg this guy as evil immediately. He's got the evil cheekbones. He's got the evil widow's peak. He's got a crazy widow's peak going on. Also, snappy dresser. Also, real fucking turd. All true? Yeah. He is... Fun. He reminds me kind of like of a Vincent Price character, mm. where he's like this combination of cocky and arrogant, but also like totally afraid of everything mm-hmm. and runs away immediately when confronted, but in a way that I find really fun. I love that Hellcat figures that out at the at the <laughs> end, and really all you need to do to defeat this formerly really powerful bad dude is just cover his eyes. <laughs> Well, that was the instance where in during that fight scene, all I kept thinking was, man, it's come up before, but Patsy is like a so much better version of Beast Boy. She's making fun quips the whole time that she's fighting, and when she encounters a foe who has to make eye contact to be effective, she's able to just be like, oh, I'll just cover his eyes. Mm-hmm. Beast Boy never figured that out. Mm-hmm. He keeps falling for that shit with Jericho. Every time. Every time. What a dumbass. The other thing that I thought was pretty fun about Arthur Shaman, Shaman. is when they, he has the psychiatrist, his hypnosis is starting to wear off, and the AIM guys are all just like, oh, what do we do? We're trying to restrain him. And he's like, must I do, I'm sorry, must I do everything? <laughs> and then he just punches the guy in the face. It's really fun. Especially because I wanted that psychiatrist to get punched in the face. I don't like this psychiatrist. I don't like that he wants to date his patient. Yeah, that's generally, I believe, frowned upon. I'm frowning very hard at it right now. I have have turned my frown right side up Mm -hmm. into a real frown when when I think about that. Also, just getting drunk and talking about your patient in a bar doesn't seem like a great idea. I wouldn't appreciate it. No. The one thing that I did like about him was how difficult it was, even under hypnosis and the AIM guys pulling thoughts out of his brain. They must have just been looking for very specific information because somehow they never figured out that Captain Marvel is Carol Danvers. They just wanted information on Carol Danvers and the fact that she is a superhero, which this psychiatrist does know, I guess never came up. Mm -hmm. So that was a lucky time. Yeah, or the portable psycho conditioner that they created didn't function quite as awesome as they had hoped. And that's why I always try to use a psycho shampoo and conditioner in one. Not a portable. I mean, it is portable. But, I mean, its defining characteristic is that it cleans as it conditions. I mean, I just don't have the time to use a separate psycho shampoo and conditioner. (laughs) I'm a busy man on the go. Right. (laughs) <laughs> that's fair. It sounds expensive, but no, no, that's the thing about Pert. <laughs> Smooth finish, delicious. <laughs> I was told recently I'm not supposed to be drinking my Pert Plus. No. 
the fact that Captain Marvel never has her identity figured out. I'm sorry, she's still Ms. Marvel at this time. Mm -hmm. Never has her identity figured out. Left me a little bit confused. They all knew that Bruce Banner was the Hulk. Is that just common knowledge in the Marvel Universe at this point? Because it seems like the Russians would have known that if it was. I don't know. Wong might have something to say about that later. Oh, might he? He might. Interesting. But before we leave the psychiatrist behind, there was that scene in the bar that you mentioned. Yeah. And on page six, I, I wondered if you ever felt similarly to the barkeep where he mutters to himself, why did all the weirdos come to my bar? Oh, I had that feeling constantly as a bartender. Mm. It turned out they went to every bar. That's just a thing. Yeah, but I was like, yeah, I feel you, buddy. I liked that bartender. Mm-hmm. He just wanted to be left alone and to do his job. Yep. It's guys like that psychiatrist, or when I was bartending, I was like, man, can't wear any t-shirt that has printed words on it or an image. Just black t-shirts. I don't want to have the same conversation over and over and over again. That's fair. Because of that lousy psychiatrist. Mm. Trying to include me in his narrative. No, thank you. Leave me out. Yes. If Kyle Richmond loves his fucking jetpack so goddamn much... Why doesn't he get it fixed? Or marry it? Also, yeah, it's not like he can't afford it. He's super rich. It's been broken for a while now. He's back in town at this point. Why doesn't he get his fucking jetpack fixed? He won't shut up about it. Yet, we find him vaulting from rooftop to rooftop like some kind of knucklehead that thinks he can fly. I wonder if not getting his jetpack fixed is his way of giving himself a built-in excuse for failure. I went through a period where whenever I was writing something, and I didn't do it on purpose, but it was a subconscious thing, where if I was writing something that I cared about, I would put it off and put it off and put it off until the last minute, and then it would just be either a rush job, or I would write when I was super late at night and I was really tired, and I would always just be like, oh man, I wish I'd done a better job, but I didn't have time, or... I was drunk, or it was I was really sleepy. I'm pretty sure that was just so that I had an excuse for not doing my best. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering to what extent that is what Kyle is doing with his jetpack. At least you got it done, man. That's true. I don't know. I feel like the degree of effort that you put into something is probably the best indication of how into that thing you really are. Like with work especially like things that you are kind of obligated to do. Some I would do a very half-assed job at, even though it was really within my wheelhouse, so Mm -hmm. to speak. And others I would put a bunch of time and interest into, or energy into, because they were interesting to me. But I think there is also a thing where sometimes you end up putting something that you care about off because it's important and you want to make sure that you don't fuck it up. And it ends up being a self-fulfilling prophecy that you end up fucking it up because of that. So don't put it off? Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're... Okay, yeah, we're no, we're in accord. We're yeah. Yeah, I'm saying you shouldn't do this. Yeah. And also I did this. I don't do this anymore. That's good. I actually find that I do my best writing uh, early in the morning, which is weird because I'm not a morning that person. That is very strange. It is. Hmm. There's one other thing I want to bring up, which is the letter column to this issue. We've seen before that uh, a lot of people who end up going on to have careers in comics will write in letters. Mm -hmm. This issue, we have 
letters from three different people who went on to work in the comic industry. Wow. We have a letter from Kurt Busiek, who is a very well-regarded and really good writer. He writes all of the Astro City comic books and created those. Oh, I read that. Um, that was good. He's written everything at one point or another for the, the big two industries, and he's a really well-known, really thoughtful author, and I really like his stuff. Um, and he was very frequent contributor to the letters pages in comic books. Mm. And so it was fun to see a letter from him. We also see a letter from Bob Rohde, who uh, went on to write a number of comic books and also did some performance art. Goes by the name of Robert Rohde and didn't really start doing much in terms of major publishers with comic books until I think the late 90s. But it's nice to see a letter from him in here too. And we have a letter from Peter Sanderson, who was also a frequent contributor to letter columns. And through that, ended up getting kind of my dream job. He was hired by DC to read all of their comics published since 1936. This is in the early 80s. (laughs) And just help them catalog and archive. This is before the internet when you could really crowdsource easily, things like that. But they hired him to kind of be their encyclopedia of comics and through that he helped them put out the series who's who in the dcu which i think we both yeah thought that feral lad was a much bigger deal than he was because of that because we randomly had uh issue uh, issue f of that yep that was the only one i had for years and years (laughs) me too (laughs) but then he got hired by marvel in a similar capacity and helped put together a lot of the official handbook to the marvel universe too Man, you would have been so good at that. I mean, I think I, you still would be, but like maybe, you said, internet. If anybody's hiring, mm-hmm. you know, I'll, I'll read all your comic books. Yeah. No, um, no risk of a flaming carrot situation. You'll be fine. There's always some risk of a flaming carrot situation. Mm. I mean, I would have more difficulty than I think he did putting together my utility belt that has cornflakes in it mm-hmm. um, and building the propane jet in the top of my giant carrot mask. Yeah. God, that's a good comic book, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, I just thought it was uh, it was interesting to see that yeah that higher percentage. There's five letters published in this, and three of them were people who went on to have careers of one sort or another in comic books, and that was kind of neat. It's nice to see that uh, history packed into the medium like yeah. that. Well, speaking of packing it in, you ready to get into the minutia? <laughs> Yeah, sure, why not? All right. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Cory, sartorially speaking, which element of fashion did you find most worthy of note? We've talked about two of the three that I had already. Okay. A little bit. Um, but yeah, first one was Disco Nick Cave, uh, <laughs> skinny neck, tall black turtleneck, neck, real tight, mm-hmm. large, loose, hugely lapeled orange I outer think leisure shirt. suit top. Yeah, some real seventies polyester looking. Yeah, big, we definitely big like yeah, business eighties businesswoman shoulder pads. Mm-hmm. It's a hell of a look. I actually really like that outfit. It's quite striking. Mm-hmm. Especially when in concert with the, uh, as I said, defined cheekbone widow's peak and pencil-thin mustache. 
You can see him, like, getting ready, like, when he just has the turtleneck on, looking at himself in the mirror, talking to himself. He's like, yes, you are so evil, but now you need to look good. He's probably hypnotizing himself into thinking that. So I'll just have that extra confidence. Mm -hmm. Because he uh, puts on that yellow, that orange jacket. Ooh. Ready. Yeah. Ready for business. You're a star. (laughs) (laughs) The name is Shaman. (laughs) Arthur. Like he practices it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Arthur Shaman. I wonder if that was a reference to Dick Warlock. <laughs> Could be. I mean, all roads lead to Dick Warlock. Do mm, they? So, yeah. Who'd you have? Well, that was definitely one look that I noted. Another was Kyle's out on the town wear. He is also wearing a leisure jacket. But he is wearing an ascot with it, which just leisure suit with an ascot. If it was a little bit more of a kerchief, it would be a total Mr. Furley look. But it's still like same ballpark, like just like a rich, buff, young Mr. Furley. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, actually, I would watch that prequel. Rich, buff, young Mr. Furley. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, I had that too, but also I included Hellcat. With it, because they make a pretty cute couple. They make a striking couple. She's got a very 70s looking, uh, like, peach colored, maybe satin slip sort of dress. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That, I think they they go well together with that, those those get-ups. They do. It's a couple that I disapprove of, but it is a a good look, and they make a striking pair. Mm Mm-hmm. And the other thing that uh, I think we've both touched on was the AIM look. The, uh astronaut beekeeper apparel Mm -hmm. which brings us into our next category behold or be gone today's topic is inspired by ames outfits astronaut beekeepers Mm. space bees Corey. behold or be gone how do you feel about space bees um so bees that are like earth bees but they live they can live in the vacuum of space and they just fly around i picture them more as being like giant bees that are partly metal that come from space oh man that sounds pretty cool i mean earth bees are really important for pollination and stuff so yeah imagine all of the things a space bee could pollinate but they are partly made out of metal would they view their earth cousins as an enemy and try to conquer them like a mecha godzilla situation Man, I don't know, but I don't care. I'm going to say full behold. Behold. Corey, you are absolutely right for one very important reason. Hmm. Space honey. Oh, shit. I got to eat some of that space honey. When can we make this happen? Ah, gosh. It's still, I mean, it's dangerous. I mean, there was a chance that I would lean towards be gone on this because... Like I said, we could have a Mecha Godzilla situation where they come down, they want to subjugate or destroy our, our Earth bees, and, you know, we're already doing a pretty good job of that here. Or get back at us for destroying their cousins. Exactly. But it's worth the risk for that sweet, sweet space honey, which, what even is it? What kind of space pollen are they finding out there? I don't know, but also maybe they're cool. Like, you can ride them and stuff. <sighs> Imagine that. Be pretty sweet. I can now. Sweet as space honey. Mm. All right. Sounds like a double behold. Behold! Space bees. Corey, every issue of a Defenders comic 
has a character who has to act in a way contrary to their previously defined character or motivation. To paraphrase the fat boys from Crush Groove, they just gotta be a sucker. In this issue, who was your sucker? This category is often a tricky one. In this book, it wasn't so hard for me. I straight away went with Kyle mm. because he showed what I read as a remarkable sense of uh, team player-ness and didn't really just assume leadership or that he's in charge and then get pissy about that not being the case. There was one little part where he's telling them where the tracker is and then they grab the tracker and run off and they leave him kind of hanging <laughs> and he's like, hey guys, where'd you go? Yeah. But uh, that, you know, that, that was understandable because he wasn't there and he didn't know what was going on. I think that's a solid choice. I decided to go with the Incredible Hulk. Hmm. There is a scene very early on in the unnecessarily elaborate and just generally unnecessary introduction story where after he hits Steve in the dick and then knocks Val out when she tries to hit him with the flat of her sword, mm -hmm. Steve seals him up in the crimson bands of Ciderac, you know, like he does. Mm -hmm. And he is immediately both physically subdued and calms down immediately. But not just the fact that he calms down, because I'm willing to accept that the Hulk is quick to anger and quick to forgive. But he gets super passive aggressive and sulks out of the room afterwards. And there are a lot of ways I would describe the Hulk, but passive aggressive is not generally one of them. As soon as the battle is over, he says, let Hulk go, magician, or Hulk will. And Steve's like, the time for battle is over, Hulk. You are free. Soon as he frees him, Hulk says, Hulk is sorry, sword girl. Hulk only wanted to protect his friends. Next time, Hulk will know better. He won't Damn. protect his friends. Yeah, that is a sick, passive-aggressive burn from the Hulk. And that, I would say, is pretty firmly outside of his wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah. the Hulk was my sucker for, for that. Yeah, that is some weird shit. Mm-hmm. What was your pie not made out of steel? What words did you enjoy, much like you would enjoy a pie, were it not made out of steel? Like many of the words I enjoyed in this issue, these came from Hellcat. And uh, she was just making quips left and right, but on page 26, uh, there's a part where she's attacking one of the bad guys, and uh, he calls her a, a harpy. And she says, well, Chuckles, I'm no harpy, I'm Hellcat. And just really the fact that she called him Chuckles. That's pretty good. I thought it was great. Calling somebody Chuckles is a good time. Mm -hmm. Almost always a diss, unless they happen to be Chuckles, the G.I. Joe character. I remember that one. He was brought in for the G.I. Joe movie where uh, we meet Galopulus. Mm. We'll watch it later. My pie not made out of steel came from our buddy the Hulk, who, when he is about to attack the goofy-ass looking war robot, Warbit. the Warbit says, Combat Situation Report have located target entity Hulk via gamma radiation sensors. This unit and conveyance presently under assault by three humanoid entities, among them target entity Hulk. Hulk's response to that is, Hulk is not entity, shiny men. Hulk is Hulk. And then he gets backhanded and mm -hmm. says, Ugh. But I really liked the, uh, Hulk is not entity, shiny man. Especially because the robot isn't particularly shiny. Like, shiny is a way you would generally be able to describe a robot, but this one is an evil robot, and therefore, 
understandably, is green and purple. Mm-hmm. Yep, same as Hulk colors. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Hulk is not entity. No. That pretty, pretty fun. Pretty good. Mm-hmm. What was your favorite sound effect? Well, I did like the whack when uh, Hulk whacked uh, Doctor Strange in his junk. That was pretty, mm-hmm. pretty funny. I think my favorite was probably Ms. Marvel uh, punching the bad guy because it makes the noise rock. That was pretty good. That's a you good, do love rock. That's a good uh, punching noise. There's also a bonk. There's also a bonk, too, mm-hmm. uh, which is Art Shaman punching Psychiatrist Man in the face. Mm-hmm. Bonk. Bonk. I think my favorite was the Hulk getting hit with a freeze ray. Oh, I had that one, too, actually. Which made the noise... Shreeze. I like a three dash or a two dash three syllable sound effect. That was a good one. Mm-hmm. The astronaut beekeepers of AIM also had guns that made interesting noises. We had a Zactnazram mm-hmm. right next to each other, and those are good noises for science guns to make. Very lasery. Mm-hmm. Corey, every issue of a Defenders comic has a best defender and a worst offender. I think we've maybe hit enough of these that pretty soon we should figure out a, uh, a namesake for each of these categories. Mm. But for now, let's just call them Best Defender, Worst Defender. And in this issue, who were they? Who was the best defender? Who was the worst offender? For the best, uh, I had Hellcat because mm. she consistently kicks butt and cracks wise. And that was just a lot of fun. I guess the only thing that would detract is her choice to possibly date kyle which seems bad but that's her choice yep so whatever that's i had hellcat i think that is a solid choice uh i went with ms marvel mm, she um, was pretty great she was just a total badass fucking ko's a robot in one punch uh one that had previously taken out three incredibly powerful people yeah guy basically takes out almost as an afterthought the hulk clea and valkyrie and ms marvel just shows up and socko he's done And just in general, I thought she did a pretty good job. Conversely, who was the worst offender in your opinion? For this one, similar to the reasons that you had him as the Sokka, I had the Hulk. Hmm. Because, okay, it's not surprising that he sees something surprising and gets angry and wants to smash it. Like, that happens pretty often. Sure. But the fact that at the end, he knows his friends were trying to help him, and he smashed him anyway, like... Not only is that out of character, that's just kind of a bad job. Yeah. I think that's... Pains me to say it. He also just was really alarmingly ineffective in fights throughout. Yeah, like he's ostensibly a more powerful, or at least as powerful a puncher as Marvel. I think potentially at this point, at least, he is the most powerful individual in the Marvel Universe, like in terms of physical strength. And there was some attempt at hand-waving of this, I think, where the robot, when he's fighting the Hulk, says, I got in the first punch, so now I'm operating at peak efficiency. Which was like a weird throwaway line that didn't really make sense, and I was like, oh, what an odd thing for him to say. I think maybe that was put in later after it had been established that Marvel took him out with one one hit. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, he gets frozen with a freeze ray, and then towards the end, there's a scene where Kyle's like, Hulk's still defrosting, so I guess I better do my bit. And I was, like, waiting for the Hulk to bust out of the ice, and he never did. He really just didn't do anything 
that effective in this issue. The other option that I had was Valkyrie. She also was very inefficient in this and tried to calm the Hulk down by hitting him with a sword. That is a bad idea, and she knows that is a bad idea. From experience. Yeah, it doesn't work. She is also completely ineffective against the Warbit. But ultimately, I decided to go with Kyle. Oh, really? Yes. He wouldn't stop whining about his fucking jetpack. Just <laughs> buy a new goddamn jetpack. When he sees that there is an intruder in his apartment, he and Hellcat change into their duds, and then they go downstairs, and then he punches through his door for no goddamn reason. It's his apartment. It's not faster than opening the door. Which Marvel points out. Yeah, and he's just like, yeah, depends. He has, like, a comeback that doesn't make any sense to that. It's like, depends who's there. It's like, no, it really doesn't. It's just easier to open a door. And I understand the impulse, but would it have killed him to just give Ms. Marvel the setup to her fucking joke? <laughs> She's fishing for it. Just let her have it. I don't know, man. Those are unusually tepid reasons for you to give a, a worst, but... I'll, I'll accept it because generally I don't like Kyle. <laughs> well, and I didn't want to go with Valor the Hulk. <laughs> That's fair, too. And he broke that door and he really should have. I don't know. I, like, yeah, it's dumb. But on the other hand, if I thought there was bad guys in my house and I had the courage to bust down my own door and say, gangway, creeps, <laughs> that would be pretty cool. I think kick open the door would be an option. Or I would just open it and then, like, kind of, like, reverse slam it. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Just and, like, and then it, it'll take you longer to get through the door if, like, you're doing, like, a Jack Nicholson in The Shining. That's just to scare the intruders by chopping your own door down. <laughs> you yeah. like, this dude's fucking nuts, man. Let's get out of here. Okay, maybe that would have been a better way to go. Mm. Either way, he didn't do that either. No, bad job, Kyle. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Again. <laughs> <laughs> what was your favorite panel? Funniest was, and it keeps coming up, but sure. the, uh, the Hulk uh, dick slap of Doctor Strange. But I think I'm going to go with page 23, which is uh, Hellcat, Ms. Marvel, and Nighthawk busting into the bad guy's uh, lab or whatever. And it, it is a very dynamic kind of a standard here comes everybody shot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I like that they are obscuring the sound effect. With their bodies, the Cthulhu and the rubble. There's like debris flying into the field of view. Yeah, I liked that one a lot too. I decided to go with one from the next page, which is Captain Marvel punching the robot's head off. But part of what I like about it, it's it's a really cool, pretty dynamic looking panel. But she has just clearly punched the robot's head off, and after she does that, she says, "There, I've staggered the robot." Mm. It's like, wow. Yeah, I guess that would be one way to describe it. He's staggering because he no longer has a head. Because you punched it off. She is powerful. Indeed, she is. And I think that was my favorite panel. Nice. Now, we both know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? So I had a dual rule. Ooh, a dual rule from the Hulk. But I think they are related. The first one is when you've done something bad, apologize. Especially if it's friends involved, which he does. I mean, <laughs> granted, is pretty passive-aggressive and weak, but <laughs> say, if you screw up, say you're sorry. Okay. Second of all, um, limit your screen time. Ooh. Because 
I feel that's really why I hope freak the hell out where there's just too much stimulation and then big heads <laughs> floating in the you know so you room. think like hulk had previously just been watching a ton of youtube clips on the eye of agamotto yeah or whatever hulk's into you know yeah and, uh, and he's, he's just, just got stimulated yeah yeah happens to everybody you know mm-hmm. i can understand that mm-hmm. well hulk should maybe get some of those uh those yellow tinted lenses that'll filter out the blue light. Mm-hmm. Or uh, the magical app that's just like, hey, you might want to shut me down because you're spending too much time. Oh, is that an app? They have a, uh, yeah, all those like a... Uh... Do you mean a stopwatch? No, like um, some of the mobile operating systems have stuff built in that tells you how much time you're, mm. you're spending on your phone and you can set a little like alarm to yell at you if you use too much. Yeah, it would not be out of line for Steve to put one of those on the uh, Eye of Agamotto. Mm-hmm. I'm sure everybody's coming over. <laughs> Just be like, so I um, heard about these flame ghosts. I think it might be funny if we, you know, watched them for a second. Yeah. Or, I gotta do some private research. Can you guys? Be gone! Yeah. This is Steve's private time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, limit your screen time. These Apologize to your friends. Nasty little flame ghosts. Oh. <laughs> I think those are some excellent rules for the Hulk to learn. I had the Hulk learning a, a simpler, but perhaps equally important rule. Hmm. If you punch people in the dick, they're not going to want to hang out with you. They might even go to a different dimension. Mm-hmm. He punches Steve in the dick, Steve quits the team. That could be correlation, not causality, but I think there is an element of causality going on there. Mm-hmm. And that's the Hulk's rules. Nice. Limit your screen time. Mm-hmm. Apologize when you've erred. Mm-hmm. And if you punch people in the dick, they're not going to want to be your friend. All good rules to live by. Yes. Well, I think it's time for us to write some wongs. Oh, shit. In the year of our Lord, 1978, and the month of our Lord, March, what wongs? needed writing so wong man of many interests mm-hmm. has some contacts in the uh entertainment industry and he had been uh moonlighting as a special consultant for a new program that was coming out oh really what program is this this is the incredible hulk oh my show. yeah so it aired uh premiered on march 10th and we, we touched on this a little bit earlier about you were asking, does why does everybody know that Bruce Banner is the Hulk? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we all know disguises and all of that work pretty well, despite pretty loose implementation in both the Marvel and the DC worlds. Right. But Wong didn't want to just give everything away, so he did have them change Bruce's name to uh, David. Mm. Dr. David Banner. That is very... What a good friend. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, he and Steve got some popcorn and hung out and watched the uh, first episode. Nice. They like it? Pretty good. It was pretty good. I watched that again pretty recently. I haven't seen it forever, ever. I mean, slower paced than we're used to for television these days, but still pretty worthwhile. Hmm. I dug it. That was one Wong that needed writing. The other one also is related peripherally to the entertainment industry. As was noted in this issue, Clea mentioned that Wong was out at the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Well, that was perhaps a bit of a 
fib that Wong made up because he was a little bit embarrassed about what he was actually up to. Ooh, that is unlike him. It is. I can understand why. Both why he felt he had to do this and why he was perhaps uh, not the proudest to have done this. Wong had gotten a call from S.H.I.E.L.D. and they needed him for a very, very special mission. They had gotten word that the Red Skull was back on his bullshit. Mm. Back on his evil-ass Nazi bullshit. And he was up to one of Wong's least favorite tricks that the Red Skull gets up to. And that is once again resurrecting the hate monger. Oh. Hate monger, I don't know if you're familiar with this fellow, but his secret identity is that he is a clone of Adolf Hitler. And Wong is just like, oh, fuck, not again. But then he had an idea. Something that would both be a pretty good prank and would confound the Red Skull's schemes. Mm. Unfortunately, it is a pretty distasteful prank. But he figured... What if when the Red Skull thought he was cloning Hitler, he was cloning somebody else? Somebody that it might take him a minute to realize that he hadn't cloned Hitler. <laughs> so, <laughs> Wong went to Scandinavia and grave robbed Charlie Chaplin. Dang. So that the Red Skull would accidentally clone Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin had died a few months ago at this point. And this is why Wong was a little embarrassed. He's like, this is a good idea, but it is a little bit distasteful what I am doing. Mm. He never wanted Charlie Chaplin's family to find out about this. So he hired some local thugs and told them like, here, I'm just going to take this body out for a second. I hope I can trust you to inter the body again and no one will find out about this. Unfortunately, grave robbers uh, are not always the most trustworthy lot. And these people decided to try to hold Charlie Chaplin's remains ransom. They phoned his widow, Una, and told her that they had the body hostage and they wanted $600,000 to return it. And she said, no fucking way, he's dead. What are you going to do, kill him? Mm. And uh, they were confounded. And fortunately, a few months later, the police did end up picking them up. And also, and also the Red Skull ended up cloning Charlie Chaplin. He saw the little mustache, thought mm -hmm. he was home free. Mm -hmm. But uh, Chaplin just played a bunch of pranks on him, really got his little tramp on, and uh, did some pretty funny The Great Dictator shenanigans. Then, you know, the Red Skull did eventually catch on and, you know, murdered him mm -hmm. horribly. But still, pretty good prank. That is a delight. And that was the Wong that needed writing in the year of our Lord, 1978, and the month of our Lord, March. Very good. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for joining us on this journey through time. Mm -hmm. It sounded like you started that ghost noise with an M, which made it sound like a ghost cow. I did not intend to do so, but Moo. you're welcome. That's a fun noise. Once that cow has tasted flesh. <laughs> oh, boy. Have you read the, uh, the Hell Cow issue of Howard the Duck? Oh, no. It's a vampire cow named Hellcow, who is Bessie, who was a cow that was bitten by Dracula. Oh, jeez. I think I was uh, calling back to an old Tick comic when there was a... Oh, Man-Eating Cow. Man-Eating Cow on the Man-Eating Cow. Train. That was a whole spinoff that I loved. Mm -hmm. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. 
If you would like to find us on the internet, well, I suspect you'll probably do a pretty good job doing that because we ain't hard to find. We're on Facebook and Twitter and Tumblr and LinkedIn and Google Alerts. If you put in a Google Alert for Tighten Up the Defense. Ah. Um, yeah, you can just type in the title of the show and then you can find us and, uh, you know, that'll be fun. One of the things that'll pop up if you do that is our Patreon page, which is a wonderful way if you would like to donate financially to help keep the show viable for us to do. I would really appreciate it. It is patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a bunch of bonus material, including the monthly show that I co-host with Lisa about Howard the Duck. In one episode, we do talk about the hell cow. That show is called What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. Um, it is a show whose title has diminishing returns, definitely, but the show, I think, uh, remains strong. By the time this comes out, a new episode of that will have just dropped. I also uh, have been making more videos where I discuss classic comics that I've read recently. Just will have wrapped up doing a whole week on Jack Kirby and some of his underappreciated comic books. There's some real fun ones. I just talked about the Dingbats of Danger Street in the last one. And so, yeah, if you want to uh, donate on Patreon, you get access to all of that stuff. So maybe consider doing that. If you would like to contribute in a non-monetary way, I think a nice way to do that would be to uh, leave us a review on whatever podcast app you use or figure out a different way to spread the word of the show. As we discussed last week, if you want to leave us a negative review, a fun way to do that is to leave us a really positive review, but keep pantomiming jerking off while you're doing it so that the uh, app will know you're being sarcastic. So uh, that would be something you could do if you're a real jerk who doesn't like us. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, anyway, uh, like I said, thanks for listening. Uh, We will be back next week with New Teen Titans Volume 2 Number 3. Those books have been a ton of fun to read. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what's in store with that, with the uh, the Trigon saga continuing. That'll be fun. Scary. Spooky. Wait, the space bees are our friends. The space bees are attacking the ghost cow, Cory. Oh, no. Zap. That's the noise a space bee makes. That's a good one. Cory. Space bees! Oh, jeez, you said that so loud. Because <laughs> it meant it. <laughs> Bye! Bye! And they knew it! the story about when you were a little kid and the teacher told you to buzz off and you walked away going yeah that was a real little shit i don't know that sounds like a pretty good zinger yeah that was mrs (laughs) (laughs) still not a fan Uh, i bet she's dead now oh